You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Today we talk with Lisa, a licensed child and family therapist. She's the founder of Safe and Included and the co-founder of the Food Allergy Behavioral Health Association, also known as FABHOF. Lisa provides food allergy counseling, education, and support to individuals, families, and caregivers. We dive into a topic that impacts me personally, and that is food allergy anxiety. Lisa shares some of the signs and symptoms of anxiety and the steps you can take to manage it. I learned a lot about myself in this interview, and I can't wait for you to learn too. Hi, everyone. Today, we are here with Lisa Rosenberg, and we're going to hear about food allergy and how it can affect people and their mental well-being. So let's get started. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got into this space? Sure. So I grew into my own food allergies as an adult. Uh, my first anaphylactic reaction was at 30 when I had a soy protein shake and my blood pressure dropped. And I had always had soy my whole life. I had never had an issue with it. My daughter was about six months old at the time. So that was my first entry into it personally. I had been tested after that episode and was thrown into, here's a list of food allergies allergies and here's an EpiPen script. Good luck. And then at 18 months old, my daughter had her first anaphylactic reaction to hummus. From that, she had tested positive to sesame and garlic. And then at two years old, she had another anaphylactic reaction to sun butter. So we have added multiple food allergies for her. She's allergic to, at this point, peanut, tree nut, sesame, sunflower, garlic, mustard, and pumpkin seeds. Um, We avoid all seeds at this point with her. I have very similar food allergies to her, plus soy. And then my son was born three years after my daughter. Uh, Within two months, he was having allergic reactions to dairy and eggs. So my son has food allergies to dairy, eggs, peas. And then he also has non-IgE food allergies known as FPIs, food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome, to banana, avocado, and black beans. Uh, so we really, when I say I get thrown into food allergies, I got thrown into food allergies. We manage IgE food allergies, non-IgE. I also have oral allergy syndrome. We manage top eight and non-top eight, and it is all-consuming. And I've, I had to figure out how to still raise kids and live life. And that's kind of how I tried to problem solve because I was paralyzed with my food allergy journey. You were also a high school biology teacher and then a camp director and a school social worker and also a child and family therapist. So in all of these spaces would be really beneficial to knowing how those spaces work in order to manage food allergies. And so I just wanted you to talk about how all of that played into how you're able to help people. Sure. So my... You know, my first love was biology and I, you know, I was like found that my passion was the teaching aspect more so than the than the biology aspect. And I felt that I could help more people with life in general. 
So I went back to school at night for social work and received a master's in social work and a license in social work. And when I had my daughter, I had taken a sabbatical from teaching to stay home that first year. And then I decided I did want to go into the social work field as opposed to the teaching field when I went back to work. So I started doing school social work part-time. And the coolest thing is that the district where I worked, I was the counselor. So I truly didn't just sit behind a desk and do paperwork. Unfortunately, many school social workers are very bogged down with IEPs and 504 plans. I really got to do the hands-on counseling in classroom lessons, in individual counseling, in the school system, in small group counseling with students. And I also got experience writing IEPs and 504 plans. So I really saw schools in a different way. I had been in the classroom as a teacher and now I was seeing it as a support staff. And it was very different. We often don't realize what one profession within a school, how different the roles are and in their functioning. And then when my um, kids came along and were diagnosed with food allergies, I was having my own troubles with the school systems that we, where we live. And I was told, you know, we didn't qualify for our 504 plan and it didn't affect her learning. And it was really challenging. And I was skilled in this. You know, I was educated. I did this for a living and I couldn't get our needs met. And I fought tooth and nail and advocated after that whole exhausting process just to get a 504 in place for accommodations. I was heartbroken for the community that didn't have the skill set and expertise that I had. And I decided that that was going to be my mission was to really start doing food allergy consulting and education in the community, in the schools. I started training every single elementary school staff person in our school district, which is 13 elementary schools. So it's very big. And it was conversations that we were having that was really showing the lack of what it's like to live with a food allergy. You know, everyone knows of epinephrine auto injector. I shouldn't say everyone. Many know about epinephrine auto injectors and have heard of anaphylaxis, but you know, they weren't really sure of what that really meant as a classroom teacher or as a school administrator or as a parent, what needs the their kids needed in a classroom to be safe and then included. You know, we're really starting to see the psychosocial impact of the exclusion that our schools are modeling and that our extracurricular activities are modeling where it's they're working to keep everyone safe because safety is a priority, but they're they're excluding the kids while doing that. And we're really seeing the fallout of that exclusion now with the psychosocial impact uh, on the on the kids that are living with it, especially as they grow and go into young adulthood. So I really you know, I so I started doing consulting. I started my business doing consulting. And I had so many practitioners, so many allergists and pediatricians say, please tell me you do food allergy anxiety. Please tell me you do counseling for food allergy anxiety. And I, at this point, I was still working in the schools part time doing counseling and I was doing consulting and education in the community. And I finally, after two years of hearing this from from the outcry, I said, you know what? I need it. Like, I need to do this because this is the next calling of my of my life. And I took my professional experience and my personal experience and I said, I 
get it. You know, how many people can say when they walk into a therapist's office, I don't have to explain to you what it's like to be paralyzed to leave my house or what it's like, how heartbreaking it is when your child says, mommy, I don't want to go to that birthday party because I don't want to bring my own cupcake. My clients I work with really know that I get it. I started really seeing an explosion of nine, 10, 11 year olds coming to my office recently with food allergy anxiety because they're really starting to become aware of the the gravity of the diagnosis. And a lot of times they, they don't want to eat. They stop eating. And so when I work with them, they have, there's definitely some sense of relief and comfort that I often get from them when I explain that I've experienced anaphylaxis and I understand what it feels like. And I, I understand what epinephrine feels like and how to use it. Most therapists aren't going to be able to say. And so I, what I try to do when I'm working with other therapists is try to give them some simulation or some sort of tools to allow them to step into the food allergy world and gain some empathy with different exercises that I try to do when I'm training them as well. That sounds amazing and beautiful. And actually, do you ever do any Skype sessions with people or are you just in that physical realm? So currently, um, I'm only counseling in person. I'm licensed in New Jersey. So all of my clients have to see me in New Jersey. I am looking into telehealth though. And cause it's, it's so needed. It's, it's where we're going in the behavioral health field to begin with. So that's definitely something that I am pursuing, uh, really learning more of the best way to do that ethically and legally. <laughs> that's one of the reasons that we started the food allergy behavioral health association, FABHA, Tamara Hubbard and I, Tamara really came up with the brainchild and we kind of put our heads together and said, you know, we can't be the only ones in this space when there's such a need for it. You know, looking at the quality of life studies that so many clinicians have done, so many um, researchers in the food allergy space have done. And we are trying to figure out really the best way to create an appropriate, almost like curriculum or training to give other behavioral health specialists, could be psychologists, social, clinical social workers, other allied health professionals that are working with the food allergy population. We created FABHA, the Food Allergy Behavioral Health Association, in order to at least connect people in that space. So people, if they're interested in learning, they can ask questions and feel like they can get evidence-based data and answers and not just, well, I do this, so therefore it's the best. You know, we really work on providing accurate research evidence-based articles, data, information, best practices. And having that sense of connection is helpful because when you are doing it and it's not well known in the behavioral health space, it can be isolating. And when you have a question of how to best help your clients, you need someone else to talk to. You need that supervision, that clinical supervision. I do know that the school psychologist is oftentimes the first person that people think of when they think of, okay, what's most accessible? And Mm -hmm. so I think it's really cool that you started first by training all of those in-school psychologists. What do you think about that space? Is it getting better? Are people getting more informed? Is that a space that people can rely on or is it just hit or miss? Unfortunately, right now, I do feel that it's hit or miss. I think that the, you know, school counseling is very different than outpatient or outside counseling. The focus of most school counselors or all school counselors should really be, you know, the functioning in the school system. So how it's affecting their day-to-day classroom education, their learning, their social skills, you know, at recess and at lunch. And a lot of times we don't often see the impact of food allergies in how it affects the kids in school 
school because either A, they don't talk about it or B, the fallout is what we're seeing outside of the school building. So with it's avoiding birthday parties, it's avoiding extracurricular activities, parents are avoiding social outings. So we don't always see that being brought into the schools. So the school isn't aware of it as much, which is why school overall full school staff training is needed because the teachers are really the first person or first people that are going to see it or that should be picking up on it, especially in the elementary schools where oftentimes snack is eaten in the classroom. Um, So they're not necessarily aware of the antenna that are up on these kids when they're looking at who has what snack and they're not necessarily paying attention to what's going on or where the child is sitting or what they're doing afterward or the nurse's visits. Oh, I have a stomach ache. I have a headache. You know, and oftentimes it's before snack or right after snack. So it's really just the training of the psychosocial impact really on the teachers. The school psychologists, I would say, are often the last line of defense because they're not with the students as often and with the the overall population as often in a school setting. So it's really the teachers, I feel like, our first line of defense and training them that is going to be the most uh, useful in terms of being able to navigate, help kids navigate and manage their food allergy anxiety in schools. Wow. Having a lot of friends that are school teachers, I feel like that's always the answer. And I I really feel for teachers too, because they have a lot of stuff that they're looking out for constantly. And not to say that they shouldn't be doing this, but I do think that it's a lot of pressure on teachers and I can see how things could get missed, see what you're, where you're coming from, but it does seem like that could easily be missed because they're navigating so many other things. And can we kind of go backwards and talk about how do food allergies impact someone's mental health? Sure. So often it's, it starts with the parents, you know, the parents or caregivers, behavioral health, how it impacts it. Because when that diagnosis, is given it the child is typically younger in the initial stages of the diagnosis and so it's that parent or caregiver's responsibility to care for them now and change up what they're eating and how they're eating and how they're living to keep that child safe and included in life we're starting to see the impact of the anxiety of the parent or caregiver as soon as that diagnosis is hit the anxiety is based on what do i do now How do I live this new life? And unfortunately, we're often seeing that the caregiver or parents is given the diagnosis at the office, the doctor's office, whether it be from a pediatrician or an allergist. They're given a script for an epinephrine auto injector. And sometimes they're given valuable resources for nonprofit organizations such as, you know, FACT, Food Allergy Anaphylaxis Connection Team, or FAIR, Food Allergy Research and Education, or um, AFA, Kids with Food Allergies, KFA. So we're really, we're sometimes, sometimes given those resources and, and that's pretty much the support, the extent of the support and the preparation of how do we live this life now? So then parents or or caregivers turn to the internet, right? Dr. Google and start to really increase their anxiety levels because they're not going to valid evidence-based best practices of how to do this. So they turn to people that are often sometimes on the extreme, right? My child had an anaphylactic reaction and 
this is, you know, X, Y, and Z happened, but that's not always the average experience. It doesn't mean it's not happening in there and that there, that person's experience isn't real or valid, but it's not always the general population experience. So those caregivers are now functioning at a level of anxiety because all they've read or heard is from the extreme cases at the moment. So then they start to reformulate their life with the idea of the extreme and only the extreme happening. So they wake up and their anxiety levels at a 10, right? From the minute they wake up, they're trying to figure out how do I navigate breakfast? How do I navigate toothpaste? How do I navigate shampoos, lotions? Oh, and then I have to send my three-year-old to preschool safely and they have snacks and my three-year-old, you know, doesn't have the words to say, no, thank you. I have a food allergy yet. That anxiety truly starts or can start at the original official diagnosis. And one of the things that clinicians or practitioners can really do to help us is give us valid resources and connect us with somebody that they know is a hands-on person in the food allergy world, who's not an alarmist. Mm. So almost ideally what what would happen would be with like asthma educators, right? When somebody is diagnosed with asthma, there's trained certified educators that can help a family appropriately navigate that diagnosis of asthma. We really need that in the food allergy space. We need to have trained clinicians who can, at the time of diagnosis, walk families and, and or parents caregivers or the individual being diagnosed, walk them through the navigating that new diagnosis in healthy ways, in appropriate ways. And we don't have that in the space yet. Ideally, in my mind, I think it should be a behavioral health specialist because often so much of the food allergy world is behavioral health focused because we can't just avoid food, right? That's not an option. It's not an irrational fear when we have the fear of eating and having a reaction. So if we right off the bat kind of are proactive and validate those fears and concerns and have a behavioral health specialist that is either contracted with a practitioner's office or full-time staff member, whether it be a nurse or some other type of professional staff member on the team that's appropriately trained in uh, food allergy management and can say, hey, you know, this is something to look for and to think about is a way to be proactive and avoid some of this anxiety that we're seeing as a fallout. The problem is, how do you do that, right? What's the realistic expectation of that happening? And I don't know if anyone has an answer, which is why so many practitioners are reaching out to myself and other behavioral health specialists because they don't know what to do when their patients come to them and and they say, I won't go on vacations, I won't go to restaurants, I won't have my child do sports because they don't know what to do. So, I mean, you bring up a lot of good points and even in the asthma educator space, that doesn't exist in every clinic. It exists in bigger centers that have the resources in order to allow for that. So even in that space, that doesn't exist. And so you're absolutely right. That isn't there for food allergy sufferers. With all the technology that we have and with all the resources that we have, I think we do need to become creative in the way that we're helping our patients. 
you've given a lot of good tangible things that at least to start with allergists should be doing. And I don't know if every allergist is even doing that much, just giving the resources of the initial websites that people can turn to. And and when you said tangible, hands-on person, what were you, were you talking about someone like you, or were you talking about having a person on virtually online or something that's tangible? Truly either or. Sometimes it can just be a community leader who is a support group leader, someone who's knowledgeable and isn't coming from the place of fear though when they are sharing that knowledge. Somebody who is a expert within the community in terms of advocacy and education and so many communities have local support groups, whether it's online support groups, but they're still local or in-person support groups. I think that we need to be able to connect with somebody who lives it and as a, as a form of validation and who understands what it's like when we go to the grocery store and cry in an aisle because we are so overwhelmed by what labels to read and what it means and what brands to trust. So when you can connect with somebody, that can be a tangible resource. Just having another food allergy family, again, who's not operating from the level of fear, but from a perspective of empowerment, because really that's what it is. We as food allergy parents and families and individuals, we need to feel empowered with the right knowledge to help us to actually live with this diagnosis rather than isolating because of this diagnosis. Do you feel that allergists need to build a network around themselves? Do allergists have time to build that network? Or is it that communities actually need to go into allergist offices? It's hard to say how that gap needs to be bridged. You know, I think that ideally, if the community goes into the allergist office, it's one less thing that an allergist has to think about or do. I think it allows the allergist to know who the leaders are in the community, because how are they going to know that, right? They're not necessarily necessarily going to know who is the support group leader if they're not a medical advisor on the support group leader board. I think it's a, when we as community leaders do advocacy or educational programs in the community, it's important that we reach out to the local allergist and say, hey, here's who we are. Here's what we're doing. We would love to have you come be part of it to be a support, really, because often I feel like when we as food allergy families go to the allergist, they don't understand. And so we tell them some of the fears or worries that we have and it's dismissed because we'll be shown a statistic. And many of us have seen the statistic of, oh, your chances of getting you know struck by lightning and you'll have have less of a chance to pass away from anaphylaxis than than that statistic, right? So we're given that statistic and then we feel like our worries are marginalized. So it's more opening that conversation with the allergist of saying, listen, in general, we know this is not probable and fatalities aren't probable, but the fact is it's possible and we need to figure out how to navigate life with keeping it in our mind that it's possible, but not letting it overwhelm or paralyze us. Right. And that goes into to this comment that I read in a journal where it was talking about basically having a good amount of anxiety and mild anxiety related to food allergy can be protective because that anxiety often leads to the child being more cautious. But then when it becomes debilitating, that's when it obviously leads to impairment. And so how do you find that balance in healthy anxiety and debilitating anxiety? So often what I tell my clients from the beginning is like you kind of already 
already said, if it is affecting the day-to-day functioning, it's a problem, period. We do need to have some sense of anxiety that keeps, that's a survival mechanism. But when it's stopping us from doing the things that we really do want to do, like going to a friend's house or going on vacation or being able to eat out at a restaurant, it's a problem. That shows that the scales are too far tipped. And so our antenna are stuck on out. We have antenna to kind of give us the feeling of safe or unsafe, but when the danger passes, our antenna should be going away. When they're always up and stuck out, that's a problem. So it's really looking at and helping people assess where their levels of anxiety are in different environments and whether they're finding it helpful or impeding their ability to enjoy it. Once they can identify where their anxiety is highest, what environments and or what situations or scenarios, it's then figuring out how to, you know, three different levels of, of thinking. So it's the preventative, being able to go through the preventative steps before something, before an event that you know is anxiety provoking and kind of being proactive with how we're approaching that. And then it's learning the skills, the coping skills when you're in the moment, how to decrease your anxiety to still be able to be present and enjoy it while still being safe. And then it's that third piece of being able to afterward process through and think about what went well, what didn't go well, what you could do differently next time to still be able to enjoy life. And it's really managing and identifying, finding skills to manage it, and then always revamping and recreating strategies or skills, tweaking them to make sure that it's functional because that changes as our lives change. Can you give us some concrete examples or ideas of what anxiety could look look like for different age groups and different for parents versus children, just because I know that I didn't necessarily realize it was anxiety until I was told it. some of these behaviors I had were a little unusual and it wasn't told to me in a bad way. It was just like, oh, I acknowledge that this is probably because of my food allergies that I have these fears, but sometimes you can't recognize it in yourself. So could you give us some warning sim- symptoms that people could look out for? Sure. Um, some of the signs of anxiety that people don't often associate with anxiety is one of the most common I see is anger. When somebody is invited to a birthday birthday party or they're invited out to dinner and they get angry about, oh, oh, why do I have to, you know, why are they having it here? Why are they having it at this restaurant? Why does it have to involve food? That is due to anxiety. Anger is usually one of the more uncommon, I should say, less likely known signs of anxiety in our society. And that can be across any age. It doesn't just have to be adults. More so kids get angry uh, with themselves. They get angry about why do I have a food allergy? They get frustrated. They internalize it. Whereas adults often externalize that anger and become angry with the general population because they don't get it. And often that's one of the things that I really work on because I'd say about 70% of my food allergy clients are parents or caregivers. And then the other 30 of my food allergy clients are 9, 10, 11, 12 year old children at the moment. But it's really one of the things I really work with, with caregivers especially, is we can't get angry when people don't get it. That's not helpful. That just makes us angry and makes us unhappy. 
and then isolates us because we don't do anything. We stay in our home. So it's really thinking about rather than being angry, how do we educate in an appropriate way the people around us about how to accommodate us? It's advocating and educating, but not doing it from a place of anger and doing it from a place of we really just want you to understand so that we can keep everyone safe and included in the event at the event. So anger is definitely one of the clues that people don't often clue in for when it comes to anxiety. Avoidance is a usual side effect, I should say, of anxiety, where that's the behavior that comes out of it, right? Because our thoughts control our behaviors, our thoughts control our feelings, which control our behaviors. So when we are worried, we also have the psychosomatic impact. So a lot of times, especially with kids, it presents as a headache or a stomach ache or lethargy. You know, if they're tired, they don't want to do anything. They want to stay home and watch TV. and, And that can be anxiety. Same with adults. It can be anxiety because our minds, when we have anxiety, it's like a gerbil wheel, right? And so they're constantly going, constantly spinning, and it doesn't stop. And it's exhausting. It's physically and mentally exhausting. So really helpful information. And so my question, is there a tool that's been created for practitioners of caregivers of kids with food allergies to assess their level of anxiety, and then also for kids with food allergies to assess their levels of anxiety periodically? Or are there tools that already exist that we should be using in the world of psychology? What do you think? So there are tools. There's a lengthy tool that is given to caregivers that assesses their own level and also their child's level of anxiety related to food allergies, but it's lengthy. And we only have, what, 15 minutes when we are in clinic and see a client for in terms of allergist or pediatrician. So I've actually spoken with a few allergists about the best way to do that. And one of the best responses that I have received from an allergist is just simply asking the question, are you avoiding restaurants because of food allergies and or are you avoiding traveling? Something as simple as just asking if they're avoiding different, and it doesn't have to be those two situations, but asking if they're avoiding any aspect of you know a typical lifestyle because of their food allergies should be able to raise a red flag as to whether it's too far on one side of the spectrum in terms of anxiety or not. Interesting. Can we talk a little bit about how the physical symptoms of anxiety can mimic an allergic reaction Mm -hmm. and how we can work through those and differentiate between those? Anxiety, there is that physical impact of it, right? So we sometimes feel like we can't breathe or our chest is tight when we have something like a panic attack and our breathing gets shallow and we start to feel nauseous if our anxiety is overtaking us. So one of the things that I often ask clients to think about when they're trying to differentiate between an allergic reaction and anxiety. Are you able to apply your coping skills that have worked before to decrease your anxiety in order to decrease those symptoms? And it doesn't have to take a long time to decrease that anxiety or to apply those coping skills to differentiate between is it anxiety or no, these skills aren't working and I think it could be an allergic reaction. So that's kind of one aspect that is a can, not always, but can be a quick kind of checks and balances to help differentiate. The other thing is thinking about the environment and when's the last time you eat. Most 
anaphylactic reactions, medically speaking, are usually, you know, within two hours of ingestion of, a, of an allergen, right? So there's always outliers, but it's thinking about, okay, am I feeling this way? What did I eat? How long ago did I eat it? Where did I eat it from? You know, was it in my home versus was I out in the community? You know, those are two very different risk factors. So it's really trying to, again, think about your thought process to help differentiate between is an anxiety or is an allergic reaction. One of the other pieces, though, is thinking about if clients are struggling to get their anxiety under control and they're not truly sure, it's safer to use an epinephrine auto injector than not. But it's obviously not recommended to continuously do that, right? So it's getting a handle on that anxiety, getting professional help to be able to move forward with that. But I really do think it's problem solving more than anything. It's being able to stop recognize how you're feeling and then thinking through the likelihood of a reaction versus an anxiety attack. Thank you. That was really helpful. And one other thing that we had read about was diet and how that can be impacted. And so how frequently do you see that where people are becoming restrictive in their diet and that's causing eating disorders? So I'm definitely seeing that more often right now in terms of, again, the 9, 10, 11, 12 year old population. I don't necessarily think we're seeing full-blown eating disorders yet as opposed to disordered eating, uh, patterns of disordered eating, but it definitely has the potential to lead to to eating disorders, right? If it's not addressed appropriately. And, you know, there's been a lot of work in the field using exposure therapy or trying to reverse some of the disordered eating patterns. But if a clinician doesn't truly understand the impact of food allergies on disordered eating patterns, it can be more detrimental to do exposure therapy to that client. If a clinician is going to do exposure therapy to kind of change some of that, those disordered eating patterns, it's having them maybe communicate with a clinic who specializes in food allergy behavioral health or has a food allergy behavioral health, somebody who who has resources to be able to ask questions to rather than acting like, oh, I'm a behavioral health specialist. I, I do exposure therapy all the time. There's a very big difference between exposure therapy to something like walking in an elevator or going to talk to a checkout clerk because they're afraid of like social anxiety let's say, than food allergy exposure there. So it's really understanding the true impact, whether it's going to be helpful or hurtful, and whether the client is ready to be able to address some of that for the disordered eating patterns. A lot of it is truly just getting their anxiety under control first to then be able to address what do we do now? Now that you're able to breathe to get through it, how do we address these fears of eating? So are you just saying being in the same room with them, those kind of things, being next to someone eating that? Is that what you mean? Yes. Typically, it's thinking about some kids won't even eat safe foods in their home anymore after a reaction because they're so afraid of being exposed to their allergen. Meaning when I say exposed, just in general, being like you said, in the vicinity of. So it's it's helping them, you know, be in the same room or maybe even the same house as their allergens and then eventually working up to maybe sitting at the same table with their allergens. Some physicians will do it in office even where they'll have them hold their allergen in their hand, but not ingest it. It really, you know, there's some debate about the extent of exposure, but it also is individually based and what the needs are of that 
and the readiness is of that client. This sells very familiar for me personally, anxiety and avoidance of food. But for me, it's not even anxiety about my allergen. It's anxiety about something becoming an allergen or I will get myself into a tizzy or I will have eaten something safe for years and then I will just be convinced that it may contain something and then I will just avoid it completely. And that's where my anxiety comes. It's like I just talk myself into something becoming unsafe again or or never has been unsafe. Do you see that as well? Like when I hear of exposure therapy, I guess I thought it was more like exposing to them, them to foods that they're not allergic to, that they're avoiding rather than actually being exposed to an allergen. So it can go either way in terms of exposure therapy. It really depends on the needs of the client. But what I just heard you say was that I talk myself into being afraid of it. It's the same thing with when you're getting counseling. It's talking yourself out of it because again it's that pattern of your thoughts control your feelings which control your behaviors so if you've talked yourself into it it's changing that script in your head to be able to talk yourself out of it enough to be able to then move through the exercise or the environment or the experience part of the exposure piece of it is we need evidence right we need data in our brains to be able to trust our own self-talk all of our experiences give us data everything we do in life gives us information as to whether our thoughts are valid or maybe it's more just our thoughts and there's really no validity to those thoughts so it's when you are able to build that database or you know of experience Experiences that shows you over and over again that I've done this before. I haven't had a reaction and it's continuously working on changing the script in your head along with real life experiences together will give you that ability to move past that paralyzation of eating again. Big question that's come up several times for us during the podcast is, would you suggest that then parents have the food in their home to exemplify that this food is going to be in your environment. It's going to be around and you can't expect to always be sheltered from that food. What do you feel about that? So as a food allergy individual myself, my answer is absolutely yes, because we have to teach our kids to live in the world and the world is not ever going to be allergen free. And what's one person's safe food is someone else's allergen. And we don't know when our allergies are going to develop in life. So we have to think about what skills do our kids need to learn to be able to be around their allergens. Now, there's a lot of debate whether we keep it in the house because that's someone's safe space and you don't want them to have their antenna up necessarily at home. And so some people decide that they're going to keep an allergen-free household, but be okay for their children to sit at the regular lunch table and go to restaurants and things like that. And, you know, the goal is to teach them skills to navigate real life, right? So that's a that's an individualized decision, truly about what allergens you manage. In my world, it's not possible to keep an allergen-free home. We have so many allergies that we manage. That's just not feasible. Otherwise, we literally wouldn't have a well-balanced household of nutrition. How I managed it in my house is we have color coding. Everything in my kitchen is color coded with removable stickers. Each of us has our own color sticker, just little dots that I put on everything, whether it's a Tupperware container 
or a cereal box. And I started that because when my son was little and he couldn't read, he was a toddler, you know, I didn't want him to grab something if I had my back turned that wasn't safe for him. So I trained him to say, this is your blue dot. Anything that has a blue dot is safe for you. And we have the key on our refrigerator, the color coding key and inside our cabinets. So if there's a babysitter at our house, they know what the dots mean. And it's so easy. Just little stickers. I buy them in bulk on Amazon and everyone has their own color. So we have three. I have a color. My daughter has a color and my son has a color. And then if it's safe for all of us, we have three stickers on it. So it, it takes away some of the anxiety as to whether it's safe for me or not. I don't have to think every single time. I just have to look for that color. You become conditioned to looking for that color. You know, if you have the allergen in the house, there are certain protocols that you can set up to make it as safe as possible. All of us have our own sponges that we use to avoid cross contact when there's dishes that are being done. There's different utensils or plates, depending on what it is that we're eating. So there are ways to navigate it appropriately without increasing your risk in terms of in the household. But again, it's going back to what's our goal. Our goal is to raise children that have food allergies that are able to be fully included in life. And whatever that might mean or look like for you is how you need to navigate it within your household and within the community. That's awesome because it's such an easy thing for anybody to do and it doesn't require a lot of money because that's another aspect that we wanted to talk to you about is that what can people do if they need help but they can't afford to have somebody amazing like you in their life? And is it covered by insurance? Sure. So there are actually a number of things that people People don't realize that are out there when you don't have the finances. So first, like you said, is it covered by insurance? One of the first things that I tell people is to call your insurance company. We don't think about, oh, they're a resource for us to actually find out, is behavioral health covered? Yes, behavioral health has to be covered in some way, shape or form with insurance because it's just like medical conditions. There has to be a certain type of coverage with a diagnosis. So one is just calling and finding out what your actual benefits are based on your insurance. And that can change over time. The other thing is, you know, if you find a clinician to call and ask, hey, do you take my insurance? And then if not, you know, are you willing to work with me? Here's what I can afford. Are you willing to work within this cost confines. And a lot of people are afraid to ask that, but clinicians are in the field because they want to help people. So it's not that, that they won't work with you. It's that a lot of times people won't ask the question. So some therapists will have a sliding scale based on your income. Some therapists will have a certain number of appointment slots that they will do pro bono. And so you they might have an opening for once every other week, a pro bono appointment. But nobody asks those questions because we don't know to ask. So for one is definitely calling and asking the questions. And if the clinician that you're calling and asking answers you with no, 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 you call someone else because you want somebody who's going to meet you where you are. You want a clinician who's going to be able to understand some of the challenges and willing to work with you in some way, shape or form. Another suggestion or strategy that I often give to people is to use your community resources. So whether it be a house of worship that has counseling services or going to, if you have a university near you, oftentimes their graduate psychology or social work programs where they have graduate students working in clinics to be able to provide behavioral health services at free or reduced cost. If you're a college student, there's typically free campus services that go hand in hand when you pay your tuition. In a crisis situation, most communities have a crisis center, behavioral health crisis center to go to. There's crisis lines. A lot of people aren't familiar now with text lines. A crisis text line, it's 741741. And you text the word 
START to 741-741. And a licensed behavioral health clinician will converse via text back and forth with you until that crisis moment has passed, especially in our community. Everyone texts, right? Nobody makes phone calls anymore. And it can be, if you're in public and need to do it, nobody else hears your conversation and it can be private. So that is something that I often refer parents to for their teens. And I refer to teens as well when you're in a behavioral health crisis. So that's just, again, there's the crisis helpline, the 800-273-TALK is another crisis line. There are multiple crisis lines that are free if you're in a behavioral health crisis. So going back to kind of just the community resources, a lot of times there will be options through your employer, the employee assistance programs, the EAP programs that employers don't often realize behavioral health is often covered with where it's at no cost to them. You might be able to do like six sessions with a behavioral health specialist that are covered through your employer, but they don't think to ask that. So an EAP program, employee assistance program, is another resource in terms of cost efficiency. Or One of the other things, though, is looking at your budget. So many of us don't look at our actual financial budget or even have a financial budget to see where can we actually cut costs to spend money on ourselves for self-care. How many of us pay $180 in cable and internet fees a month, but only watch Netflix or only watch Hulu? We don't even use our cable, but yet we're paying for it. That's a lot of money that you could use for other things, but we don't take the time to sit down and go through our budget. Or if we cut out going out to lunch every week, that could be $25 to $50 a week on that. You know, it's things that we know about, we hear about, but we don't actually take the time to sit down and do it. So it's really prioritizing yourself to help you find that hidden money somewhere. And it's not for everything. It just, it can be a short term thing. You know, counseling isn't typically a forever strategy. The goal is be able to work on the skills, learn the skills, and then be able to apply it without your therapist's help. So there are all, you know, a few simple things that you can do when you don't have the extra finances. There's also great apps. Talkspace is a great app in terms of telehealth that you can do a monthly subscription to. There's other apps in terms of mindfulness apps like Headspace and Calm and that It's kind of more of a self-help. This is what I actually just learned. A website called needymeds.org, N-E-E-D-Y-M-E-D-S.org. You put in your zip code and it provides you with free, low-cost, or sliding-scale medical clinics in your area. And I just learned about that. And I said, you know, that's pretty empowering to be able to type in your zip code, your area, and set a radius and say, you know what? There are people that are there to help me, but nobody knows about these resources. So even just going into Google and Googling low-cost behavioral health, you can find resources, but we don't think to do that. That's great. That's super helpful. And Courtney and I will definitely compile that list of everything that you just shared with us because that is gold. Before we go, uh, where can people find you online? So my website is uh, safeandincluded.com. There's also a food allergy counselor directory. That It's uh, foodallergycounselor.com slash directory where they can find clinicians in their state that are specifically food allergy knowledgeable clinicians. In order to get in that directory, there is a vetting process. They have to provide a decent amount of information to be cleared that, yes, you are a food allergy knowledgeable person and you are professionally trained as a clinician. So we are always looking for new clinicians to add to that directory. 
directory on the foodallergycounselor.com, which is Tamara's website, Tamara Hubbard. She has a form if clinicians want to fill it out and then we can get in touch and increase the amount of food allergy knowledgeable clinicians on that directory and part of FABA. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.